This is the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. So, these are probably some of the hardest words in the Bible. And just so you know, for full disclosure, um, Right when I became a Christian, I had been an atheist for my first 21 years of life. And right when I became a Christian, um, I began to read the Bible. And when I began to read the Bible, at some point I encountered Romans 9. And I hated it. And when I came back to it later, I hated it even more. And then when I came back to it another time, I wanted to tear it out of the Bible. And for about eight years, I just kept thinking to myself, this can't be true. Uh, there's no way this could be true. God could not be a good God and this be true. So if you're thinking that, uh, you're not alone. In fact, uh, if it's not bothering you that this is true, then I think that uh, you might want to check out your heart and how much you really care about people because it bothered Paul enormously. Um, he wrestled with this day and night This whole section of Romans, chapters 9 through 11, is dealing with this question that he had. Um, His brothers and his sisters and his parents and his rabbis and his friends from synagogue and all the Israelites that he knew, many of them rejected the one that he came to believe was the Messiah, Jesus. And so it absolutely tore him up. The people he loved the most, the Israelites, who he would expect to receive Jesus as the Messiah, they didn't believe. And he didn't know what to do with that, and it confused him greatly. And he says here that his heart is filled with bitter sorrow and unending grief for his people, his Jewish brothers and sisters. And so the the entire Romans 9 through 11 is this, uh, this dealing with this question of Israel and why has Israel not believed? Why have the majority of Israelites not believed? And it, it perplexed him, it confused him. And so I think in Romans 9, he's kind of talking himself down, talking himself off the ledge, if you will. He's, he's confronting his own doubts. This is coming out of years and years of wrestling. So this is not easy stuff. And if you haven't encountered it before, just know that. And I think he tells himself two things. Uh, He's probably told himself this for years. Number one, he tells himself, look, God doesn't owe mercy to anyone. It's not a birthright. It's not something you deserve. And in verse 15, he says very clearly, I will show mercy to anyone I choose. And he's quoting the Old Testament there. This is not a new idea. And the second thing he says is, we simply cannot understand why this is the case. He's kind of aggressive in the way that he says, you should not try to understand this. There are some things, there are quite a few things, the vast majority of things we should try to understand. There are a few things that are mysteries, that are hidden, that we have no 
ability, no capacity to understand. They're, they're outside of our pay grade. And this is one of those. Uh, this mystery, which is sometimes called election, it's uh, sometimes called predestination. And that's what I'm talking about, these two things. So number one, no one earns it. And number two, no one can understand it. So first of all, Paul begins by saying um, that just because someone is from the biological line of Abraham never ever meant that they were automatically a believer in Yahweh. The, the, the simplest way he puts it is in verse 8. Abraham's physical descendants are not necessarily children of God. They don't necessarily believe. And he, he compares, uh, for instance, Isaac. Uh, so Isaac is this example of he believed, but, he, but Abraham had other children that did not believe. And so what he's saying there, and the same with the next generation, Jacob and Esau, one believed, one didn't believe. So just because you are from the biological line of Abraham uh, does not necessarily mean uh, that you're going to have faith. In other words, faith is not genetic. It does not automatically get passed down. I'm a third generation Presbyterian. Uh, I'm a pastor. That does not mean my children will automatically believe. A lot of times we have this sense of uh, that kind of privilege. Just because we believe, our family should believe, or our friends should believe. And Paul says, no, uh, God does not owe anyone uh, the gift of faith. I will show mercy to anyone I choose, verse 15. Because mercy is such a radically undeserved gift that God does not owe it to anyone. It is not a human right. It's not like life or liberty or the pursuit of happiness. Uh, faith is a gift. It is not a right. And we often forget this, especially religious people forget this. And we tend to think um, that we have earned something. Uh, we feel privileged. We feel entitled. And the, the Jewish people were no exception to that. Uh, they thought, you know, God owes us blessings just because we are Jewish. A lot of Christians feel the same way. And God sent John the Baptist to go ahead of Jesus and to tell these uh, smug and self-satisfied religious people um, that's not the way it works. John the Baptist came and he just attacked that sense of privilege and entitlement. And he says in Luke 3, 8, do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that God can make children of Abraham out of stones. In other words, biology is not difficult for God at all. He could make a stone into a child, into a biological child, but faith, the gift of faith and belief is a miracle. It's, it's an impossibility that, that God chooses to give to whoever he wants to give it to. And I think if John the Baptist were here today, he would probably ask us the question, you know, do you think you deserve it? Do you think your children deserve it or your parents or your siblings or whoever you pray for, your friends, that you long for them to know the love of God. And a lot of times Christians today, I think, feel like um, we deserve better things uh, than other people, than people who are not Christians. Because we have um, whatever you want to put in the list, we've prayed or something like that, or we read the Bible every day, or we come to church. Um, we are good people. And so we think that uh, we deserve these things for being generous or pure. We think we deserve a good community, maybe a great marriage or a satisfying job or well-behaved kids. 
And Paul is saying to us here, uh, we're never anything more or less than an undeserving sinner saved by grace. That's the challenge of this first section. That uh, Verse 12 says, he does not call people according to their good works. He, this is very important for you to understand this. He did not look at you and say, uh, man, Ben is a really impressive guy. I think I'm going to pick him for my team. It's not like when you pick, you, know, you pick a team, like in basketball, you pick the best player on the court first and then on down the line. It's not like that with God. He doesn't choose people for that reason. He doesn't choose us, choose us because of anything good about us. Um, he doesn't foresee anything good about us. It's not just that there's no resume that we have to build on. Yeah, that's true. But then also, he's not foreseeing that you're going to be a great person. It's not like he's saying, you know, Ben is going to be a really good pastor one day. He's going to be a great preacher one day. And I foresee all these good things he's going to do. And so I'm going to choose him. He's going to help out my cause a lot. No, that's not what it is at all. Israel was told by God, it's not because you are better than the other nations or stronger or more numerous. For none of those reasons, I chose you. And then Paul tells the church of Corinth, uh, not many of you were wise, uh, not many of you were noble, not many of you were powerful. God chooses what is weak and despised and foolish. So if anything, he chose people because of their lack of these things, lack of virtue. People like Paul, who was a murderer, a persecutor. And if God called people because they were good, nobody would be called. Because we read this in the confession of sin, no one is righteous not even one. No one seeks God. No one cares to understand him. And this is the thing. Um, this is the illustration that I try to use with people when I talk about predestination. So if I'm talking to somebody at, about predestination, I'm at a restaurant, which happens from time to time. I, uh, I usually it's at the end of the meal, you know, I've kind of warm them up. I have, we have this meal together. And then I'm, I say, now we're going to talk about predestination. So I get all the empty glasses and I pull them into the middle of the table and I have my ketchup bottle and I say, this is God, dead center of the table. Pull all the empty glasses around God and I say, this is all human beings, these glasses. And I say, uh, all human beings are running from God at top speed, just sprinting. So I start moving the glasses away from the center. And I say, you know, eventually we're all going to jump off this table. We're all going to just fall off the table and just shatter. And that's our choice. And the ketchup bottle is going to come and run after some and bring them back. And we don't know how many. I'm, I'm hoping it's going to be many. The majority, the vast majority, I hope, he will come and save. But the question is, does he owe it to all of them to do that? Especially because they don't want him. You know, as the ketchup bottle comes for the glass, the glass turns around and starts punching the ketchup bottle and kicking and screaming and wants nothing to do with the ketchup bottle. And so the, the choice to, to, to run away from is, is its own choice. So God is not doing anything unfair and letting them go their own way. Now the person always comes back at me and they ask this question. They say, well, if he could save them all, why doesn't he save them all? And that's where I just have to shut my mouth and say, I don't know. And I hate that I have to say that. But Paul is urging me to say that. Paul is telling me, uh, resist the urge to explain this because you can't do it. It's got to feel that awkward. 
Because in verse 20, he says, who are you, a mere human being, to argue with God? We just don't have the capacity to understand this thing. So uh, first of all, no one earns it. Hope I've made that clear. Number two, we cannot understand it. So first of all, notice that Paul anticipates your objections. That's very important. See, it's not like you have thought more about this than Paul, and he would have been like, oh my gosh, I've never, that's a great question. I've never thought about that. Paul wrestled with this for decades. And so he knows exactly what the objections are. And one of them is in verse 19, well then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? That's exactly my objection, or it's not fair. He also anticipates that objection. So, in other words, he's arguing with himself here. He's, he's being gentle. He's not saying that's a stupid question. I can't believe you'd ask that question. He's saying, I have asked that question. And notice how he responds in verse 20. He responds very gently with, no, 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 don't, don't say that. Don't go there. You're, you're a mere human. And how can you possibly argue with God, with God's revelation? Because it's not like this is not a clear part of the revelation of God. It's in the Old Testament. Israel is chosen by God, very clear. Chooses the 12 disciples, chooses Paul, chooses everybody. And he's just saying, like, yes, that's very, very hard to believe. But, you know, you can't, as a human, you can't argue back with God about such things. It's just not possible for us to understand these things. I mean, think about how tiny our galaxy is in the entire universe. Think about how tiny our sun is within our galaxy. Think about how tiny a speck our planet is within our solar system. And now think about how tiny your brain is within that planet. And how could that little thing figure out this question, which is massive? The um, the verse 15, this, uh, I mean 20, is a great way of trying to understand this. Paul says, um, he makes an analogy here with pots and potters. And he says, should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? That might sound elementary, but what he's saying there is, is it possible for the Mona Lisa to say to Leonardo da Vinci, why am I smiling? Or is it possible for Romeo to ask Shakespeare, why didn't Juliet you know, wake up just a little earlier and none of this would have happened? Paul is saying we, we are the thing that God has made. We are the actor in the play or the actress in the film and we just can't go there. Our brains are not capable of understanding the answer. It's not that there isn't an answer. We just can't understand that answer. It's like a child uh, that would ask their parent, you know, why is the sun shining? Why, is, why does the sun produce all of that light and all of that heat? And the, the parent can't say, well, you know, there's this thing called uh, nuclear fusion where you take uh, these two hydrogen atoms and you crush them together and it produces a helium atom and all this energy, all this light comes out. A child just cannot understand that. And how much more we humans are incapable of understanding mysteries like this. We just can't figure it out. Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith that I was mentioning earlier, it calls uh, 
predestination a high mystery. I like that term. A high, not just a mystery, but a high mystery. And it says it must be handled with special prudence and care. There's some people that when they believe in predestination become very dogmatic and very irritating. They get kind of belligerent. And the Westminster Confession is saying, no, 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 that's not, it, it's got to be handled with prudence and care, with humility, with gentleness. And then it goes on to say that if rightly understood, this doctrine of predestination, quote, provides humility and abundant consolation. And so what it's saying is that the reason that God has told us this thing is it, it humbles us and it deeply, deeply consoles us. And let me just try to end by talking about those two things. First of all, predestination humbles you. And it crushes your sense of control. And that's a big, big part of being a human being and being an American human being, that I've got control of my life. And nobody tells me what to do. Nobody moves me around like a puppet. I'm not saying God does that, but in verse 16 it says, it is God who decides to show mercy. We can neither choose it nor work for it. You know, it's bad enough we can't earn it. It's really, it, it's frustrating to me that we cannot work for our salvation. It's even harder that we can't even choose it. That my sacred right to my own self-determination is abolished by this idea of predestination. A lot of times I, I, I pretend the objection is that I don't want God to be cruel or I don't want God to be unfair, or this is not right, but really what I'm saying is I want control and I need to determine my life. And I made this choice, he didn't choose me, I chose him. Uh, God said to Moses, I will show mercy to anyone I choose, verse 15, and I will show compassion to anyone I choose. Very important, he says, I chose them twice. And when Jesus was talking to his disciples who must have become unbearably smug and self-satisfied at some point when they realized, oh yeah, I'm one of the 12 chosen. Can you imagine their self-righteousness? And so at one point in John 15, 16, Jesus, just to set them straight, says, look, I, I chose you. You didn't choose me. I came after you. I pursued you. I saw you fishing. I saw you at the tax collector's booth, and I pursued you. You did not come and choose me. And you, you can imagine how hard that was on Peter's ego, because he was probably thinking, Lord, I thought you saw how my leadership skills in fishing and how, how I led this group of fishermen on these expeditions, and I thought that's why you chose me. And Matthew might have thought, I, I thought that you saw my great potential for writing. And I thought that you chose me because I was gonna write the great gospel of Matthew, because I was good at numbers and counting and writing. And then Thomas might have thought, I, I thought you chose me because I had such, a, such high level critical thinking skills, and I was a skeptic. And Jesus says, no, 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 I chose you because I chose you. I'm not a talent scout, and you're not diamonds in the rough. I just went around and picked different people for reasons you can't even understand. And it's not capricious, it's not random. We don't know what it is. We don't know why he does it. But I, 
I sometimes ask myself, you know, why do I believe and why does my brother, who's smarter than me and kinder than me and more courageous than me, why does Jonathan not believe? And when I think about it like that, if my first instinct there is to say, well, I fill in the blank, I'm, I'm wiser than Jonathan, I'm more humble than Jonathan, I'm more naturally a seeker than Jonathan, I'm, I, I'm, I'm more willing to open myself to the supernatural world than Jonathan, that's all rubbish. And if you're thinking that about yourself compared to whoever it is, your friend, your roommate, your parents, your children, your siblings, it's usually siblings, if you're thinking that way, just delete that. That's of no use at all. Because Ephesians 2.9 says, faith is a gift from God lest anyone should boast. And so it's humbling. It's very humbling to know that all of your knowledge of God comes from him. The source is all from him, all top down, no bottom up, top down. He pours it into you. Now that's not only humbling, I would say that's very consoling. Because if I did not enter into my relationship with God because I sought him, then I can't lose that relationship with God by ignoring him. If I didn't get it through good works, I can't lose it through bad works. And indeed, Jesus says that very clearly to the disciples, John 10, 28, I give you eternal life and you will never perish because no one can take you out of my hands because my hands are too strong. My hands are stronger than your free will. I mentioned that last week. And so to conclude, the reason that I wanted to rip Romans 9 out of the Bible was because I thought it was not fair. And if you want to rip it out of the Bible, or if you want to delete that you ever heard this sermon, or if you hated this sermon, it's probably because you think that it's not fair. And I understand that. Um, I obviously was there with you. I'm sympathetic to that, so just hear me say that. But also ask yourself, do we really want a God that is fair? Because a, a God that is fair would let us run over the cliff would let us jump like lemmings off the table and shatter on the floor. And if God were a fair God, he certainly would not have come to die to give his life for people who did not seek him, did not want him, kicked and screamed against him, crucified him. So I, just, I would appeal to you not to care about fairness too much because uh, fairness really doesn't get us anywhere. And this table is certainly not a table of a fair God. Uh, this is a table of, a, of a, a shocking God who loves people who hate him, even while they hate him, to the end, to the bitter end, who tracks them down as they run from him and grabs them and brings them and hugs them and tells them over and over again, look, I love you. I love you and you cannot get away from me. You cannot escape my love. And that's the deep consolation of this high mystery of predestination. So as we come to this table, just know that everyone coming down here is a, is a sinful person who has no natural inclination to God. And if you don't come down here, you need to know that no one coming down here thinks they're better than you, or at least 
we shouldn't think we're better than you. Of all people, uh, believers in Christ should be the most humble of all because of what I've just said. And that this is a table of pure grace for people who deserve none of it. And that's really, really good news. And so uh, if you're not going to partake in this supper, like I said, I really respect that. And um, I commend you for that and feel no pressure. But again, I want you to know, especially, uh, that that's not because we think we're better people than you or that you're a worse person than, than we are. Um, this table is a table of grace.